If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Welcome back. We are the Lib Slayers. Tony and Clem, our mission, as always, is to bring global awareness to the general public while exposing the legacy media and its demonic globalist overlords. How are you doing today, Clem? I'm really good, Tony. Really good. Well, a lot of things happened in the last week, Clem. Um, just as things, again, were heating up with the uh, Trump-Russia collusion debacle exploding in the liberals' faces, but I think we need to bring Mike on the mic back for another historical breakdown of the Syrian conflict and what has gone on for the last seven years in this, what would be Obama's Vietnam. Uh, so how you doing today, Mike? Doing good. So Mike, take us through the origins of the war to where we are today. All right, no problem. Um, what I think before I even get into the whole Syria debacle and the numerous different factions that are involved what we need to look at is just what would be the end result if we did end up going into um, into Syria full bore. And the people who uh, support these Middle Eastern wars and consider themselves Christians need to realize this. Um, the attack, if we were to attack Assyria, we would be essentially annihilating Christianity in the Middle East. It would be a war to exterminate Middle East Christianity. Uh, you got to look at Syria itself. It's essentially the cradle of Christianity. In the Bible, you have the uh, Paul conversion on the road to Damascus. I mean, that city, Damascus, the Syrian capital, is stated as the longest continually inhabited city in the world. We would be annihilating what's left of Christians in the Middle East. Syrian had one of the biggest, Syria has one of the biggest Christian populations. They're about 15% of a population that's roughly around uh, 25 million, which has obviously been decimated in this war. And all you do is have to look at, and you guys saw this firsthand, um, in Iraq. Iraq used to have 1.5 million Christians. They were protected by Saddam. Uh, they, were, you could argue, were a successful group. And since the invasion their number has been dwindled down to, some say, less than 250,000. ISIS put the final nail in what was left of Iraq. Christianity destroyed all their churches when they took over. They've got that land back, but, uh, you know, the many relics and ancient uh, artifacts were destroyed by the ISIS horde 
Um, so that's that's my main argument. What I want to get across is if you attack Syria, you are literally for the annihilation of Christianity in the Middle East, which is where it began, obviously. So I think if we're going to look at this uh, crazy Syrian civil war, uh, once again, this is another one where the tried and true tactic of using a color revolution. Um, you saw it in Lebanon with the Cedar Revolution, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. This is how intelligence agencies overthrow countries that they don't want, who have a leader that they want removed from power. Hey, Mike, so the th- before you even get into that, I just, I just want to compliment you on making that initial point, and, and I want to compliment what you said by pointing out that even the U.N., in uh, all of its, uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't have a lot of respect for the UN, but even they have come out and said that basically throughout Iraq and Syria, there has been, in fact, a genocide by definition against Christians uh, there. So, I mean, it's, <clears throat> you know, when you bring up the word genocide, you know, that kind of uh, bring, brings things up to a new level. And uh, clearly that's what you're pointing at. There has been a Christian genocide uh, going on in that area, and that would be a continue. And, and as you pointed out, you know, if we expand the war in there, that's just going to be an expansion of the genocide. So I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to expand on that and add to it because you're absolutely right and pointed out. No, I appreciate that, Clem. Um, and actually, I'm glad you said the word genocide because there's no other way to describe it. It's been an absolute genocide of Christians in the Middle East. These these wars that were launched by the Christian U.S. has done absolutely nothing but terrible things for the Christians in the Middle East. It's a real shame. Um, well, I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, in the name of globalism, was this done? I mean, the, the the farce that Christianity is behind this kind of violence. You know, people will try to say, uh, you know, this is a Christian nation, but it's like, but these are globalists. It's not it's not Christian people in America begging for these wars when you have a hijacked government like we've been talking about numerous times on this show. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, but let's get back to what we're here to talk about, and that's the, the Syrian civil war. Um, and I was kind of getting into how these are, in fact, yes, yeah, started by color revolutions. Um, this one hopped off in Homs. There was a supposed, uh, you know, civil disobedience against the government in town, and supposedly there's some government snipers shooting people. People on both sides get killed. A riot ensues. Um, and then within a week, you get about, I want to say it's 80 um, newly recruited Syrian army guys on their way outside of Homs, and they got, they got ambushed, and they wiped them all out. Um, and that's what then, if, you know, think about it, this country. If you had 80 soldiers driving through the countryside, get annihilated, do you think everyone's just going to be okay with it? No, the government's going to respond. Um, and many argued it was, you know, too forcefully, and then that's when it all kicked off. And it, this is a Muslim Brotherhood-led revolution, just like they had in Egypt. So I would say the three main sides, there's the Syrian government side. The other side, I will just give it the umbrella under the Free Syrian Army, um, but this includes ISIS, Al-Qaeda, um, and all the Saudi and Qatari-backed factions, uh, and Turkish-backed factions. And then the third side would be the Kurds, who are essentially, you could argue they're a little more allied with the Syrian government, but as you saw what happened in Afrin, 
uh, pretty recently with the Turkish advance and attack. If if the Kurds don't have American air power over them, they're going to get wiped out like anybody else. I mean, the Turkish army, they, they took some casualties, but they took over that entire province, which was a Kurdish stronghold for four, you know, the entire length of the war in a matter of a couple months. If the Kurds don't have the air power, they're not, they're not, they're not as strong as uh, they appear to be. So those are the three factions on the Syrian government side now. Um, and when I'm describing this, this also needs to get the point across that there is zero reason for us to be in there. We are definitely backing the Kurds. That is our group. Um, and then there's kind of a, I guess you would argue, an umbrella group called the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is almost entirely Kurd. There's a few um, Arabic groups in there to kind of give it the, to not make it seem like it's all Kurds, but there's a mostly Kurdish force in the eastern part of the country. So on the Syrian government side, we have Russia, who was invited in officially by the government. You have Iran, who's been invited in. They're all over the place. Uh, Hezbollah, the, I mean, I, I would call a paramilitary force from southern Lebanon. But to me, I wouldn't describe them as a terrorist group because they look like a, an actual army. And then there's also Iranian militias and Afghan militias, these Shiites from Af Afghanistan who, uh, who are also fighting on the government side. So, I mean, right, and then you also have uh, these groups called NDF, which is the National Defense, Defense Forces. These are essentially towns that were loyal to the government, and any of the guys in, in the town who used to be military guys take up arms and are essentially fighting on the government side. So it is, as you can see, that's just one side, and it's already too many names to remember. So now you have to, you have to look at the other side, who's fighting the Syrian government. Again, I would say the big umbrella over this would be the Muslim Brotherhood uh, with their factions in the Free Syrian Army. The Free Syrian Army themselves are essentially just army units that defected once the Civil War officially kicked off. Um, so these guys are former Syrian soldiers uh, who are now fighting against the Syrian government. And I would also put in there Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the numerous different Saudi factions. So there's there's literally entire fighting groups, or I would call them militias essentially, that get their funding directly from Saudi Arabia. On top of that, there are other umbrella groups. I would put these more under the Al-Qaeda side. Um, these people are going to be funded by Qataris. So you have Qataris directly funding the opposition, Saudis directly funding the opposition, and then the Turkish uh, funding would be more along the lines of the Free Syrian Army. And then when ISIS took over large swaths of Syria, along with Iraq, the Turkish government was dealing directly with them with uh, oil sales and stuff. So, Hey, Mike, let me ask you a question right here. Uh, how much of what was going into the Free Syrian Army side of it, how much of those uh, people and personnel, weapons, assets, et cetera, came up from Libya? Initially, that's, it looks like that's where most of the weapons were coming from. That's what the entire Benghazi thing was about. The whole idea, this was the domino effect. They took out Gaddafi. He had weapons storages everywhere. I mean, the guy had a weapons bazaar and out, you know, throughout his entire country. They were raided all. Most of the militias took a lot, but then they also shipped a lot from um, Libya into Turkey and then down into Idlib province, which is where uh, most of these hardcore fighters are right now, actually. That was the main, that was the main entry point. And, of course, people are going to be selling them to ISIS and everything else. 
how much of the funding were the were the rebels in in Libya getting? You know, was it the same entities, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, et cetera, assisting in the Libyan civil war? And then once they had deposed Gaddafi, then those entities then turned towards Syria. I mean, is that accurate or no? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the people that fought against Gaddafi were in the uh, Muslim Brotherhood-backed factions. So that's going to be Qatari money and then some, you know, factions of Saudi Arabia that don't necessarily align with everything the crown prince does, um, whoever whoever it is at that time. So, yeah, that's going to be, that was Muslim Brotherhood, Qatari-funded. Uh, we come in, but you got to look at Libya is a lot different than Syria because those guys got air, the air power from the EU. EU Air Force, you had French, uh, Netherlands were running a bunch of them. I mean, they were running sorties all. That's how they were able to, again, you know, if you get air superiority, you're going to win any battle. And that's what they had over Gaddafi. So that's why the, the militias are able to, able to run wild. It, now, it's correct different. Me if I'm wrong, but United States Army Central Command also has its forward headquarters there in Qatar. Is that is that not correct? Absolutely, which is so kind of a big deal. The very government that's funding the Muslim Brotherhood, that's funding what's going on in Libya and Syria. One hundred percent. Yeah. That's that's the way it's been going. I mean, you got to look back. I was tracking that. Yeah, it, it hasn't changed since Afghanistan. So it's all the same, same people, same players, same results. I mean, you basically had all of these fighters pouring out of Iraq at a certain point to then flood down into uh, Libya, battle-hardened and ready for action again and just rebranded under a new name. And that's really what it was. Absolutely. There was uh, numerous fighters from all over the Arab world that ended up uh, scrambling to Libya to help in the uh, raiding of that country's resources and uh, obvious weapons caches. And then those same guys went, they jumped from Iraq to Libya right into Syria. And the difference between Libya and Syria is the entire time the Syrian Air Force has had air control over Majority of the country, I mean, I know the United States definitely has a claim in the eastern part right along the Iraqi border, uh, but since the Russians have come in, uh, the two countries, Russia and the United States, have, have coordinated their attacks pretty well. There's never been an incident in the air between a Russian or a United States uh, plane that, that resulted in the death of anybody. So, um, But the Syrian army has always had air superiority, which is why... They've been able to hold on to the country. So I went over the factions. You have the Syrian government side, and there are numerous allies helping them. The, I would say, Muslim Brotherhood, Free Syrian Army side, which includes a lot of, of bad people um, and the people helping them. And then you have the Kurds. This is a group, of the largest group of people in the world that don't have their own country. I want to say it's something close to 40 million. They're spread out through Syria, Iraq, Iran, Turkey. They're a mountainous people. They're not Arabic. The language is in Arabic. Some of them are um, different religions. For instance, uh, the Yazidis. Those people are ethnically Kurd, I believe. So that's who the Kurds are. They're a large group of people. They have a big part of Syria. And that's the kind of funny thing because they were essentially refugees um, after the Turks had their Turkish revolution. They annihilated all the Armenians. So you had a bunch of Armenian. Uh, you have a large Armenian influence in Syria because 
the, a lot of the population had had to leave from Turkey, uh, and they went into Syria and they were accepted. So there's a large Syrian Armenian community. Uh, so let's just I'm just going to go now. I, I named all the different factions. Now I'm just going to name all the different ethnicities that compose of this country. So you have Armenians. Christians, Syriac Christians, Maronite Christians. You have a, a bunch of Palestinian refugees uh, that live in this city. It's called the Yarmouk camp. It's essentially a city. There's, I want to say there's a couple million. The couple million Palestinians. They have Kurdish people. They have Alawites, which is the ruling minority. Uh, that's what the family Assad is. They're not quite Shiite. They're definitely not Sunni. Um, they compose about 15% of the population of the country. Uh, the biggest group, believe it or not, is the Sunnis. Then you have Shiites, and you also have Druze, which is another religion that's also in Israel. Small group of people, but very, very tough fighters. Some of the best, uh, one of the best generals was a Druze in uh, the Syrian army. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a, a country with numerous um, nationalities, every kind of religion of the Abrahamic religions, with, including some offshoots. So that's where we're at. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, wasn't Syria a Ba'athist ally of Saddam in Iraq before, before Iraq fell, and then it was after our policy of debathification that that went into debathifying Syria as well, or no? The, while they're both called the Ba'ath Party, uh, there was, I want to say there was definitely some animosity between the two. They didn't necessarily get along. There was those, a bunch of videos, you know, pre the, the Iraq war before Bush went in, where there's a whole bunch of movement of equipment from Iraq into Syria. So there's obviously some connections, but they weren't, they weren't as close as you'd think. Uh, but the Bath, the Bath Party still exists in Syria. I mean, that's what, that's just still running it. So what I guess I'm trying to get, the point across with just naming all these different groups, all these different peoples, I didn't hear American in there besides we're essentially the Air Force for the Kurds. There's, there's no reason for us to be in this war. My, that's my whole argument. There's a million different people, a million different things going on. The United States has no business being there. It's not on our border, um, and it has essentially no security effect to our nation. So... Any questions about the you guys have any well, that being said, just like you you just uh, mentioned that there is no security risk this, so what is the geopolitical angle, and why is Syria the chosen battlefield of the obvious proxy war that is happening between the United States, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Iran what I mean, in, in, a, in a region full of energy and wealth, what is the angle? What is everyone really fighting over here then? You know, there's there's a couple different theories. I mean, you go back to what General Wesley Clark said in 2003, you know? Or is actually, what did he say? It was almost immediately after 9-11. Uh, he said, we're going to war in seven countries. So, you know, and one of those countries on the list was Syria. So uh, there's there's the arguments that this is actually a war over uh, liquid nat natural gas lines going through Syria. Um, from the fields in Saudi Arabia and the fields in Qatar. They don't want to have to deal with a Iranian-backed or an ally of Iran like Assad is. Um, the direct route they have to, though, the problem is they have to go through Syria. So uh, many argue that's, that was the initial cause of this, this war, and that's what it is. It's a natural gas line fight of 
Saudi Arabia and Qatar getting their pipes in through Syria into Turkey and then up into Europe. And again, you know, you can argue that this would be to weaken the Russian essentially monopoly of natural gas into into Europe. Uh, it's one of the, the biggest money makers for the Russian government. I mean, that's what Russia is rich with. They have nothing but resources. So, um, if you actually, you know, people listening at home, if you actually, you know, Google oil gas war over Syria maps, um, you will see, you know, the outline, you know, the the proposed routes of these pipelines. And if you look at the one that starts in Iran, it goes through right right through northern Iraq, which was predominantly ISIS's main stronghold, and cuts right through the center of Syria, um, which, like I said, if this is a battle over, uh, this is keeping the Iranians out of the natural gas business, then you can see exactly where this would have to take place, and it is just coincidental that ISIS's main focus in Iraq was in the north where this pipeline was going to cross. You know, I, I've also heard um, some people dispute that, and they bring up... Um they bring up some points about how that that depends on like Qatar and and the Saudis, you know, getting together and agreeing. <clears throat> and apparently, they've had issues uh, with even just trying to get an agreement together uh, about how they would do that as far as getting the pipeline up and running. And I and I've also heard some say, you know, I mean, Winston Churchill said that the first casualty of war is the truth, and that it has to be guarded with a pack of lies. You know, I tend to like be pretty skeptical at any uh, any excuse given, any especially official narratives. <laughs> right? We know a lot of what was going on during the Obama administration in his alleged red line and uh, the gas attacks. You know, there was never any proof that, it, in fact, the, the only proof that ever actually existed was that it was not Assad that did it, but in fact, it was the rebels that were supported and backed by RCIA uh, in Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> and you know, I think from uh, from a you know, I don't know how far it is from my house to Damascus, but from that many thousands of miles of view, it's just easy for me to look at it and think, well, it helps. Well, when we got the base in Qatar with our CENTCOM over there, and it helps if we can keep that whole region destabilized and we can keep a military influence throughout Iraq and up into Syria and that whole region, then that serves our our military needs and. If we have, you know, Russian presence there, then obviously that's not something that we really want. So, I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've also read. What do you know, Mike, about how much, you know, we were fomenting the civil war going into it uh, through the CIA and inside of Syria? Well, I mean, we do know for a fact that it was Cy Hirsch wrote an article about it. It was called the Rat Line. And it was all about the Benghazi um, infiltration of weapons. So at the very least, we know for a fact, RCI was definitely involved with getting the, all the Gaddafi weapons into Syria. I mean, that's if you don't have got any guns to shoot, you ain't going to fight a war. So, I mean, I would almost argue that was probably the most important part was to arm these people up. Um, and, yeah, we were directly involved with that. And that's been admitted pretty sure. I mean, you can look online, you know, you can Google ISIS U.S. equipment, and you will see dozens of pictures of ISIS members standing inside of tents that have U.S. Army decals on them, 
I mean, they're just sitting right there blatantly. They didn't even, like, send blank ones. They send actual ones that the you know, U.S. Army buys. I think also, what, what kind of part did John McCain play in this? Because John McCain, um, has, there's numerous pictures of John McCain meeting with known ISIS members. I mean, the one guy is ISIS's basically public relations guy, and the other one is, you know, essentially what they believe is to be al-Baghdadi, the actual caliph of ISIS, being pictured with John McCain. Where does John McCain fall into this, and what role of the government is he helping with to facilitate the, the, the transfer of this support to what we now know are ISIS death squads? Yeah, John McCain, he almost seems like the general of the deep state, because wherever this guy goes, if he shows up in your country, you better be scared because there's a revolution that's about to, to get popped off. He showed up in, in Ukraine shortly before that uh, revolution popped off. I believe he showed up in Libya shortly before that. He may not have, but I, I thought I heard he did. Uh, but we know for a fact he was in Syria, and he got that thing a-popping. Yeah, he was pictured with what what is some assume to be... Um, al-Baghdadi before he grew out his beard. Um, he looked like a a typical double agent. Um, and then there was this other guy, I want to say his last name is Mafuz, and he's been pictured with Paul Ryan and a whole bunch of other uh, warmongers that are in the swampy deep state. So yeah, John McCain, you know, you can almost call him the angel of death because if he shows up in your country, it, you better watch out because stuff's about to pop off. So knowing that this is a deep state operation that this is the military industrial complex doing what it does. Trump on the campaign highly criticized Obama for being in these sort of, and you know, he criticized Bush for all these, all these wars in the Middle East, all the debacles that we've been involved in for the last now 18 years, almost. Why does Trump feel the need to start pumping missiles into Syria, knowing that it's going to upset his base tremendously right before a midterm election, uh, congressional elections. Um, Clem, come in, you know, either of you, and give us your guys' idea of what, what Trump's strategy is to do this. Because like I said before, upsetting the base, it just seems not typical Trump to make this kind of blundering error, especially with, as we've seen, Trump turning over the globalists that he brought initially into his administration and replacing him with what people look to be more akin to his America first policies, yet we're jumping back in and throwing missiles into Syria. Well, you know, uh, Mike had mentioned that Cy Hirsch article, and I was, and I was trying to think back to it. And if I remember right, and, and Mike, jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe but, it's called the red line and the rat line. Oh. Right, and I, and I remember something in that article about ultimately it was it was uh, General Dempsey and the Joint Chiefs that went to Obama and said, "Look, man, we can't. You don't want us to do this." Because I think, if I remember right, instead of just a a mild retaliation to the chemical weapons program or to maybe the air base that instigated it allegedly or whatever, that what Obama was gearing up to do, what this deep state was gearing up to do, was essentially going to pretty much annihilate Assad's war-making capability. And if it could have been proven beyond doubt that Assad was responsible for that chemical attack that allegedly crossed the, the red line, then that would have been able, the, the military would have been able to justify it 
on the international stage. But the Pentagon came to Obama and said, look, dude, we do not have the proof. In fact, we've got proof to the contrary. And if we do this, uh, we've, we smoke the whole Middle East. It all goes up in flames, and, and it's a big screw-up. So, <clears throat> I mean, is that, is, that, is that my recollection of that article correct, Mike? That's exactly correct. Um, yeah, he was told what, what the Obama administration wanted was a no-fly zone over Syria. So essentially, like you said, annihilate the Syrian uh, air force ability to, to make war. Then you get air control, and that's, I mean, you lose air control, you're going to lose battle. That, that's, just, that's just how it is. But, yeah, your recollection is absolutely correct. The Joint yeah. Chief said this. We are stretched in. We are done. We're not going to do this. We're not going to be ISIS's Air Force. So that's why you saw all those soldiers coming out with papers over their head before that Syrian war vote saying, I will not be ISIS's Air Force. And there was, there was hundreds of them. It was amazing. Stop yeah, the so if, I mean, if, 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 you know, to answer your question, Tony, so, you know, if, if Cy Hirsch's assessment was correct, and if he had his, his sources right, which, I mean, who knows, he probably did, I think it was Mike Flynn, actually. Well, he was the NS. He was the he was the uh, director of national intelligence. I mean, correction, the uh, um, the director of um, defense intelligence agency at, at the time. Yeah. Was he not? Yeah, and then I think he was NSA, national security advisor. Right, but well, I he think became NSA. He was, well, he was just NSA under, for like twenty days under Trump, and then got fired when he, right. before he got busted. Right, but during Obama, he was not. Yeah, he was DIA. Yes, yeah, he, was he was head of defense, defense intelligence. intelligence. Yes, he was right. DIA. Yes, he was. That's why he knew it all. <laughs> right, and the DIA were the essentially the ones coming to the coming to the table and saying, "Look, not only do we not have proof that it was Assad, we've got proof that it wasn't Assad. That it was the rebels that we're funding. And if we go in and use that as the pretext to to not just wipe out the air force, but hit." you know, dozens of military targets around the country and wipe out Assad's war-making capability and, uh, and effectively win the, the Syrian civil war for the rebels, then we are going to be responsible. I mean, you know, you break it, you fix it in Iraq. Well, that would have been, you know, kind of a, a foreshadowing of what would have happened. Like, I mean, you said at the beginning of the program, you, you line out all these factions that are all opposing each other. And if we go in and, and, and take out the Assad government on a false pretext that is easily proven a false pretext in the international community, then we're going to eat a big turd sandwich right there. And I think that, you know, fast forward now, I think you see the same thing. Uh, as far as I can tell recently, there's been zero proof that the last chemical attack, in fact, was Assad. Uh, there's been some issues about the Russians didn't let us in. There's been some issues about what we bombed the area before the inspectors could get in. Uh, Etc. So that's far from resolved. And so, if if that was true then, you know, why wouldn't it be true now? So I think probably Trump's taking the advice of his military commanders, and they're saying, "Look, sir, we, you know, if we go in there and we expand this thing and it goes bigger, then we've got a huge mess. The whole area goes up in smoke, and we're responsible for it. Whereas a a targeted strike." essentially on some dilapidated buildings that almost mean nothing because they said, what, that they attacked, you know, serious chemical weapons program. Well, he allegedly already gave that up, and the Russians brokered the deal after what John Kerry said, 
you know, if he gives up all of his chemical weapons in the next 30 days and we won't go in. And it was like the next morning, Putin's like, well, we got that deal. So then we kind of had to take it. So well, he said, happens, he said, you know, he, he said if they give it up within the certain time frame, then we won't. But they'll never do that. And right. then it was like the next day the Russians came out and said, yeah, they made they said no, deal. we'll do that. And I think Assad saw that as, as his only hope for survivability in this. And I think it, it, it served every need he has to give him up. So and I think we have, I think the international community and the general public here in America have every reason to believe that, that Assad did give those, up his chemical weapons. So that being said, yeah, Trump, we've, Trump has been under the Russia investigation, collusion, delusion for the last, you know, basically the entire part of his administration. Could Trump, even though if he knew it was fake, okay, come out and be able to then agree with who else was saying that it was fake? Russia and Syria. Oh, yeah, he'd be so seen Assad as promoting a Russian narrative overnight. And the, and the so, legacy media would see jump on it. So, look, exactly. So, Trump now has to figure out how to maneuver his way through this. Because all this is, is really it's an optics show. In the end, Trump, even when he said, I mean, because Trump does, as crazy as Trump thinks he, you know, the things Trump says are, you know, people think they are. It's actually... He says things to garner reactions. Now, it was a few days before the Syrian gas attack that he was at a rally and was the first time you really heard him say publicly with you know, some force behind it that we are getting out of Syria. We are leaving. And almost on cue three days later, Assad, quote, attacked well, wait, people. Wait, hold up. Before on cue three days later, what did the legacy media react to when he said that? They jumped all over him for criticizing Obama's telegraphing leaving Afghanistan, telegraphing leaving Iraq. Right. Exactly. Which we which we have talked about before about Trump. Like I said, Trump knew. It's kind of like the same thing afterwards, where he used the mission accomplished quote, you know, to connect to Bush to get everyone to freak out. But I'm, what I'm saying is, he throws these missiles in at targets that are basically nothing. Like, but we go before that with Assad's, you know, the one thing, Assad basically has won this war with Russia's help. And the best thing they're going to do is use chemical weapons to attack their civilian population when they never used it once to attack the actual people trying to destroy everything. It just doesn't make sense. Absolutely. And I, let me jump in because this, all the evidence you ever need is political evidence. When Obama said there's a red line, boom, there's a chemical weapons attack. Last year, Rex Tillerson comes out and says, we're going to let Assad stay part of the government. Boom, there's a chemical attack. Bush comes out, or not Bush, good God. Uh, Trump comes out and says, we're pulling out of Syria. Boom, there's a chemical attack. That's all you, I guarantee you it was not the Syrian government. The political evidence is there. The only people it benefited every single time was the rebels. So this is absurd. Now, the scary thing is there's been reports that uh, supposedly Jared Kushner was over in, over in the Middle East uh, and offered the head of bin Salman or uh, offered the head of Assad to bin Salman to get the to get the Saudi backing. And if you see, that's the first place Trump went was to Saudi Arabia. He was touching the orb. He was swinging the swords around. Um, it looks like the, that's who could be pulling the strings here because all reports were the Pentagon was dead set against dead set against the strike. You saw Mattis come out in February 18th, said, yeah, we had no, absolutely no evidence that Assad did it. You see Mattis come out again saying it's a one-time strike. This Trump is getting 
it was reported that Trump overruled Mattis. He is getting pressure from somewhere beyond the, the Pentagon to do this. The Pentagon does not want to do this. Mattis is much more of a dove than I'd say a hawk. He's not a weak dove, but he is not stupid. He's not going to send us into this. So Trump is no, he'll, definitely he'll getting pressure. He'll piss down your neck uh, if it has to be done, but I don't think that he thinks this has to be done. Trump is definitely under pressure from someone, and shockingly to me, I don't think it's the Pentagon pushing them to do these. I, mean, I think, I think, he's, probably, I think, I think Trump, he's under pressure from a lot of directions. You know, and he's under pressure from the media. He's under pressure through the investigations. He's under pressure from his own base. He's under pressure from the deep state. He's under pressure from international allies. And I mean, and Jared Kushner, if he's over there in the Middle East, you know, I mean, he clearly has lots of alliances with Israel. Uh, and no doubt in my mind that if, you know, we deliver, and, and now here we got, it, you know, it's hard to believe that in April of 2018, you've got an open military relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And for Saudi Arabia, for the first time, acknowledging that Israel has a right to exist. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen Trump say before that he's pro-Israel, but I think at the same time, as pro-Israel as he might be, and as much pressure as he might be under, if he widens and opens up Syria to a full-blown invasion or an expansion of the war, he's done. And I think he knows he's done. I think partly because he owes a lot of his success, I think, to men like Mike Flynn, former director of uh, <laughs> Defense Intelligence Agency, and military intelligence, and guys in the Pentagon. You know, I mean, I, I, I think if the American people are tired of war, the Pentagon's probably tired of it, too. That's not to say the corporate side of the Pentagon, who gets massive amounts of budget money for guns and weapons and tanks to be used and, and exported all over the place, but the, but the generals and the, and the subordinate officers who have to lead men into battle and have been doing this now since, you know, for going on 18 years, I can't imagine them wanting to do this unless it's absolutely necessary. So kind of con contradicting myself earlier even, thinking about, you know, well, it maintains a military foothold for the U.S. military over there. I mean, I'm not sure that they, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not sure that they they want, you know, they, I, I don't think that they, I don't think the Pentagon, I don't think the guys, the generals, I mean, like you said, Mattis has come out outright and said it. I don't think they want an expansion in fact, I don't even think that it was Mattis himself, if I remember right, after the the last airstrikes. It was Mattis that came out and said, and on this, you know, as a result of the success of this mission, we call on all nations to call for the end of the Syrian civil war. I think it's a great way of, like I said, the, the, to me, this whole Syria uh, attack is another way of Trump spinning this to be able to get out. He still wants to be out of that region and i believe because all you had to do is look the russians pulled their entire fleet out of the area the entire syrian air force was not anywhere near the battlefield so that meant there was pre-coordination with both of these countries by ours so well, just on that fact, coordinating with russia exactly what you know is going to in turn coordinate with syria so i yeah. see trump i see trump pulling a very slick game here of initially putting the deep state thinking that he's going to be going into another conflict and then just because we got to listen to what these people say very specifically both trump and mattis said that these are very limited strikes 
Trump said right after, we are still pulling out, and Mattis says, I call on everyone to bring the Civil War to an end. So I see this as Trump's way of, once again, reestablishing U.S. domination and, and uh, curtailing the, the influence of uh, Iran and Russia in the region, while also being able to leave under the guise of victory and be able to have that uh, military parade that everyone bashed him for. That's what I think is happening. And, and Russia has been playing the part by playing up the rhetoric afterwards, but they already now they just came out with Putin saying that he wants to meet with Trump to settle this. So I see this as just a big uh, kabuki theater that Trump's playing and spinning the media again to be able to come out in victory because next month is North Korea. So by the time elections come around, if he's able to say, I pull, I've ended the wars in Iraq, Syria, and, re, and, and the war, because a lot of people don't remember that North Korea is still an active war. We've only had an armistice. There is no war end to it. So he's able to come out with the end of the Syria war, end of Iraq war, and the end of the Korean war and possible reunification of the peninsula. I mean, to me, that's a guy that's got the Nobel Peace Prize coming. Let's finish <laughs> up, guys. Either last of your opinions before we go. I'll just say uh, there's kind of some ominous happenings in Iran right now. It's getting essentially no play in our media, but there are uh, what looks like the beginnings of a revolutionary movement going on. There are people in the streets, they're in the mosques, and there's videos of people screaming. And this has been going on for a couple months now. This, this is the next flashpoint. So Trump could do all those great things. And then we hop into the Iran cauldron, which would be twice as bad as Iraq, three times as bad as Iraq. Um, it, it all goes away. And I could see him getting pushed there. So that's, I would just end on that ominous note. Let's end Syria and just completely end Korea, which would be amazing. And then just let's get out of the Middle East for good. Clem, any last words? Yeah, you know, in the context of that, that, you know, he's looking to Putin potentially for a meeting to try to finish up the Syrian conflict. He's already got the meeting set in place with the leader of North Korea. As you said, he may be the first president in, I don't know how many, it's like 11 or 12 presidents that have presided over the Korean War as being in, you know, a, still a state of war. If he presides over the ending of the Korean War... I mean, I think you can kind of see where he wants his legacy to be. And he campaigned on, you know, let's get out of these foreign entanglements. Let's focus on make America great again. But I think that he, I think that in the first year or so, he's come to realize that in many ways, he has to focus on our foreign policy and our foreign entanglements first before he's really going to get a, a whole lot of support uh, going forward, like, say, the infrastructure. I mean, what's going on with that? So... I mean, it's hard to say. I can't. I can't really ever see us being completely out of the Middle East. You know, we still got bases in Japan. We still got bases in in Germany, although they've been brought way down. So, no doubt about it, we're gonna. It's gonna be in the corporate interests of our country to maintain some influence where there's a huge amount of oil. So that's always going to be an issue. But I sure. I, I'm with Mike. I, I really hope that whatever starts going on in Iran, if they start. You know, if they go into a new revolution of sorts or whatever, that uh, that Trump is smart enough to let them figure it out for themselves. Excellent points, gentlemen. Uh, once again, thank you, Mike, for coming on. Uh, the historical perspective you bring on all of these topics we have you on for is second to none. Clem, once again, thank you. 
Uh, everybody out there, thank you for listening. If you like us, please, on iTunes, li- uh, iTunes, Libslayers, subscribe, like us on Facebook. And I will end with a quote from the Emperor Claudius. Say not always what you know, but always know what you say. Thank you, everybody. God bless you, and God bless America.